If you could make the soundtrack to your life a mixtape, what songs would you choose? Welcome to Almost a Mirror, a podcast about Australian music from the late 1970s and 80s, where the post-punk world of the Crystal Ballroom collides with the pop icons of Countdown. Come with me, Kirsten Krauth, on a personal journey through music and memory, where each episode is sparked by a song. In episode two, we enter the dirty jungle rhythm of Zoo Music Girl, a song by The Birthday Party. We look at crushes, animal magnetism, the seduction of performance, and ask, Nick Cave, is he a man or a myth? We meet the fans, the friends, and we remember Anita Lane. I met Nick Cave once. I was working for the Australian Film Commission and it was a film awards night. He was just there. And I was with my cousins and my uncle said, would you mind if my girls got a photo with you, Mr Cave? He seemed to like the mister. Our eyes held for a moment. Yes, I went into his arms, oh Lord. He was surprisingly warm, inviting. But once I went to Cambodia to a market where I ate a tarantula and the locals had a great time sneaking up and putting a huge spider on my shoulder. Nick's hand, it was his left, not his right, sat on my shoulder like the tarantula. Huge, pulsing, very much alive. In the photo, I am snuggled into him, but turning my body away. A push and pull dynamic, a snapshot of desire. It was that night we kissed on the dark Yarra riverbank, shedding our pasts, soft pale skin. He bit my earlobe and whispered, was so young and Nick Cave was so uh, just everything in that moment. I especially loved my Saturday mornings watching video hits with my blank video cassette in the machine, finger poised at ready to record my favourites. I remember from that first guitar chord and that first flash of the skull motif with a spiral eyes, I was utterly transfixed. Who was this scrawny man with a deep and rich voice cavorting in a loincloth with hell painted on his chest? So I hit rewind and watched it again and again and again. The imagery in the clip combined with Cave's lyrics and vocals really reached something in me. I'd always been drawn to anything dark, mysterious or gothic. And here was a man of my dreams. Or was that my nightmares? When I was 13, I was in Wollongong and heard, it was probably just a tape my brother had had with Deep in the Woods in it. And uh, it just kind of hit me in a solar plexus thing. Like I was listening to going, what is happening? And just listening and going, whoa. And I kind of knew the words and would just be singing it, but it was sort of this nightmaric experience. It was a bodily experience of hearing that song. 
And look, because I was so young, I think I just was hungry for finding more. So I just remember going to Impact Records in Canberra. This was the only record shop at the time. Going upstairs and like just seeking out any nick I could get on vinyl because I had a shitty little turntable. I basically followed him all my life from that day. There's something so inviting and alluring about Nick Cave as a performer. I'm so pleased I was so young when I heard that music and it got me in those sort of feeling zones of my body. And there was something really sort of sexual, something really violent about it. And because I was so young, I was kind of a virgin to that kind of space. That is a body memory in some sense for me of watching it on just an old VHS tape that a friend had. I think we'd wagged sport that day, year 11 or something, and went to her parents and felt like we were breaking into her house, like her folks were at work, but it was naughty. We were there, wagging her school, and this cassette came out and we watched Nick the Stripper and sort of rewound it, fast forward it, rewound it, and watched him sort of on the pole struggling with his little legs, just watching this little emaciated dude with his nappy on, just, and just finding it really erotic for some reason. But how is that sexy? And it fucking is. That was author Rebecca Fraser and musician Anna Simic, whose version of Nick the Stripper we featured in the last episode. Here's Loeen Carmen and Sarah Bedak, best friends and musicians since the 80s in Sydney. Junkyard was an album that I played on loop and was quite obsessed with. The, the feeling of it, like the anger. And it was so atmospheric, wasn't amazing. it? Amazing. Exciting. Yeah, it was really exciting, very edgy. It kind of made you feel cool just listening to it and like you were being let in on some dark, fabulous secret. That's true. So... Evocative. Evocative, visceral. It's like it kind of plucks a nerve in your body in a yeah. really good way. I idolised him. I still do. But he was a very strong personality back then. And you had the same kind of hairstyle going on. Yeah. Yeah. I did. It's true. <laughs> Spiked black sort of big mohawk, if you can imagine that. But you do with soap. Soap yeah. and beer. Soap and beer. I don't Is remember right? the beer bit. No. I Maybe think that was soap. the boys. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to smell attractive. <laughs> Nick Cave over the years has developed into an almost legendary figure, worshipped, encompassing the saint and the sinner. His dad, Colin Cave, wrote a book called Ned Kelly, Man and Myth, and Nick later uses the man or myth element for a band name after the birthday party splits up. It's a clever summation of his continuing contradictory appeal. What is it that explains this lingering fascination? Here's Amanda, a 21-year-old artist from Mexico who runs a fan club online. And I was constantly searching for things that would excite me. Obviously, I was not following the expectations people had for a young girl my age. I struggled a bit to feel accepted. And I was quite lost in my own world until I found Nick Haven. I had been lucky enough to be in contact with people from all over the world who feel in similar ways. We have a little cult thing going on. <laughs> Here. I think most Nikki fans are people that are searching for more meaningful things in life. Also, I saw it as an opportunity to leave my shyness and insecurities behind and put myself out there, uh, gaining experiences like meeting the band and sharing my artwork with them. Yeah, I wasn't friends with Nick in the early part. I was just like really intimidated. He's not comfortable to be in a room with. It's like sitting in the same room as the sun or something. He's just 
one of those people who has that jungly charisma. He's just really magnetic. Really immediately people who are around him want to please him and want his approval. And when you're around Nick, your power just sort of drains. That's what charisma is. And very few people have real charisma. He feels like a chosen person. He backs himself. He prioritises his work above everything in his life. He's not a fragile person. He's absolutely made of iron. That was Bronwyn Adams from band Crime and the City Solution, who met him as a teenager when she was at art school and friends with Anita Lane and Roland S. Howard. She went on to edit his book, And the Ass Saw the Angel, in Berlin. Genevieve McGuckin from the band These Immortal Souls was an early girlfriend of Nick's before becoming the longtime partner of Roland. She arrived on the scene from Brisbane in her teens and takes me on a walking tour of St Kilda to the places where she first met Nick and we peer into the window of an older-style brick apartment just around the corner from Roland S. Howard Lane. There was a party going on here, and we never had phones or anything like that, so I don't know how we organised where we were going. Or I didn't expect to meet anyone I knew there, but I went out. I'd like to think it was this one, but it wasn't. <laughs> Why would you like to think it's that? Because it looks so romantic, because it's roses. Roland and Nick kept hanging around in the doorway looking at me. Jen laughs when she says she tried to look interesting smoking a cigarette before Nick asked her for a light. We then wander around the corner to her apartment that she calls Del Mari. In honour of Mari Hoy and Mari and Martha slept in a wardrobe with a mattress inside <laughs> with their heads poking out from where the drawer would have been. <laughs> and so Nick came back here, hey? Yeah. And then we saw each other a few months. Roland and I were getting closer and closer during this because Roland was my confidant and he was always wonderful. <laughs> would always have my back and make sure that I got home from places. When Mari and I first moved to St Kilda, I got arrested by the police for being a runaway, apparently, because I looked so young. They were convinced I wasn't 16. You must have been pretty young and lucky to vote. Yeah, but I wasn't 16. <laughs> How old were you? Uh-oh. Well, 17? <laughs> but you weren't 16. <laughs> I asked Genevieve what Nick was like as a teenager, what attracted her in the first place. He was a bit goofy at times. I'm sure he'll hate that. I came down to breakfast and his mum's, you know, bustling around the kitchen and he says, Mum, this is Genevieve, she's a groupie. <laughs> Which if I was a groupie, I would have found offensive, but I knew he was teasing both of us, so I let him get away with it. He was handsome, he was sexy, but he was difficult. Unpredictable. <laughs> he saw everything from his own point of view. And what, in turn, attracted Nick to Genevieve? Ari and I were like the French literature side of life. Like, you could imagine us always reading. <laughs> Anita and her friends were like the, the red balloon party side of things, which I thought was interesting and not really doing justice to either of us. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is very black and white. Black and red. Yes. <laughs> so I was the serious um, person reading new wave French literature like Raymond Canot and <laughs> I think Nick says in Autoluminescent that I left him for role and wasn't like that then. What was it about him that was so irresistible? I unfortunately think that it's something to do with the, the magnetism of someone who believes in themselves so much without the least bit of self-doubt who just reaches out and takes what they want from the world. It didn't just happen immediately. It didn't just grab me and I immediately melted. I think with Nick, the connection was mostly lust and and it was sort of built on confidence because I was actually very different then. I was very, a very cocky young thing, very confident, and um, sort of had that kicked out of me. <laughs> we weren't going to last. Everyone needs a Roland. Yeah, and Roland was so interested in me, you know, and he loved doing things together. For Sarah Bedak, the impression that Nick Cave left was at a very deep level. My mother passed away in 82. And so I was really grieving and my dad wasn't really there. And I think my clothes became an expression and also the music I listened to of the pain and grief that I could not express through words. I felt so much gratitude for my friends, for you, Lothan, being so intensely around me at that time because it's exactly what I needed but I didn't but I it was didn't all know unspoken how. yeah yeah I yeah. mean we all knew that Sarah's mother had died but not when or how and yeah. it was like a forbidden subject nobody ever. ever spoke it was too raw to yeah. talk about it was also like I am not vulnerable it was an armor like the more studs and safety pins I could stick on myself and the bigger my hair and the bigger the snarl on my face mm. and I walked down yeah, the street. Yeah, it was a real protection for me. And I was really interested to hear what you said, um, Sarah, about that idea of losing someone and having the armour and the anger because I think that's, that's your connection with Nick and I think that's what he does in that song. He'd lost his dad and, but he wasn't really acknowledging that. I didn't know. Oh, I've got shivers. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's what... You know, he was wearing his armour and it's interesting this idea of Nick the Stripper because he's pretending he's taking it off, but he isn't. But he's actually putting it on. What is it about musicians? There's a dynamic exchange between the audience and the performer that can be filled with a rush of desire, a sexual charge, or turn us off. With the birthday party, this tension could veer in any direction. Here's Elisa Hall. I did go and see the birthday party in Adelaide at the Tivoli. They were so fucking loud that it was quite hard to stay in the room. But Nick was very charismatic, like he had his shirt off. And, you know, it was all kind of a dark, heroiny kind of vibe to me. And I 
been around lots of heroin users, so I kind of knew what that felt like. They had a certain kind of entitlement on the stage in a way, which was appealing because they were owning it a lot. So as opposed to people playing music, it was like a performance. So it was a bit like theatre, really. And he cut himself and he was bleeding. So, you know, Nick the Slasher. He was very physical, really throwing himself around. It was a spectacle. I'd not actually been exposed to private school people till I went to university and art school. And then I was really kind of shocked at what they were like. So I think I'd been really protected from that whole uh, establishment. They were obviously boys that were from that kind of world and not the world I was used to. <laughs> I love this idea of the birthday party as establishment. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Is it weird? <laughs> no. They were wanting to shock. They were wanting to be seen and be looked at. And it was ego stuff to me in a way. It's that performance art that's in your face and a bit scary and a bit demanding, which is what I meant by the entitlement things, like you have to look at us, you know. It just felt a bit like boys playing up on muck-up day, but taking it that much further. For Loeing Carmen, the effect of seeing the birthday party live when she was 13 was an almost out-of-body experience. We just used to go and see bands every weekend from the age of 12. It was an amazing music scene in Sydney at that time. Bands would play weekly or a couple of times a week. And the the trade union club was a place that we frequented. And for some bizarre reason, we were never, ever asked for ID, despite the fact it was like a giant posse of 12, 13, 14-year-olds. We were very mature, though. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I thought we were. (laughs) We certainly wore a lot of makeup Mm -hmm. and I guess probably fooled the elderly ex-soldiers on the door. I found a ticket for that birthday party show that we saw in 1983. When I had been in Sydney for two months, I'd just turned 13. Because they were on. That's why we went. (laughs) (laughs) Because they were on and we knew that they were meant to be pretty cool because they were $8 rather than $4 like all the other nights were. Sarah had taught me how to dance in front of the mirror. (laughs) She was like, you've got to get this right. I think we need a visual of that, really. Mm. (laughs) Well, it's just kind of standing in one spot but moving your arms from side to side and bouncing around a bit. And my clothes were obviously not cool enough, so she dressed me in a sheet, like toga style, with a big studded belt and teased my hair up. We were more into the getting ready for going out. Definitely. Like getting our outfits on (laughs) and listening to music to get psyched up to go out. And then the going out was really almost performative. (laughs) Yeah, we kind of rehearsed it in our minds so much that the reality didn't meet that at times. But the main thing I remember from that particular gig was that I got really, really drawn into the music and I literally went and leaned my head against the front of house speaker and just closed my eyes and it, you know, made my whole body shake and move with the power of that massive music coming through those huge speakers. And it put me in some kind of trance. I was there for quite some time and after the band finished and everyone left the room quite quickly and uh, Tracy Pugh, I didn't know who he was then, came up 
to me and said, are you all right? Like I saw you against the speaker. That's, are you okay? Like they obviously thought I was passed out on drugs or something, but I was just really experiencing it. <laughs> and everyone thought that I was very impressive because I'd spoken to Tracy Pugh. I was like, what did he say? He said, are you all right? <laughs> so I remember just busting into the back room after the gig and just talking to him and just like, hi. And was like a little bit sort of affronted and sweaty and a bit pissed off. And I said, oh, do you mind if I do some plays of some of the little excerpts from King Inc? And he just said, I'll oh, do whatever the fuck you want with it. And I went, oh, cool, I've got permission. I felt, actually felt like grabbing him by the shirt and saying, listen here, Sonny Jim, I'm not one of the women that wants to fuck you. And I thought, hang on a minute, this is Nick Cave. We ended up in the band room. This is at the um, ANU refectory. And all of a sudden, you just sort of hear this sort of screaming noise, like happy screaming. And this sort of bundle of two men with legs and arms everywhere just come sort of shooting across the fucking carpet, like the foul, ugly carpet. And it's Tex and Nick in a scuffle, in a kind of entwined scuffle. And I was just sitting there going, this is to date, the best moment of my life. <laughs> just watching, you know, one text, probably I still had a crush on him and Nick, what I'd moved on there because I was his contemporary, remember? They're just like literally having this sort of sexy scuffle. Nick's in his suit. Tex had thongs on from memory and they kind of flung off. So it was really hard not to laugh, but just like, just in awe. Just watching this, it was just on. It was just like they were just having a man fight on the ground. I think they were just mucking around, but they were pretty into it. And they did it for quite a while. They put on a really great show. They loved the fact that we were all enjoying it. <laughs> didn't have a camera. Wouldn't it would have been hard not to jump on. <laughs> well, I didn't even think of that. I think if I saw that now, I'd be... Yeah, that would have been good. Maybe that's what they wanted. And it was pretty cathartic. When they finished, he kind of got up and his suit was still pretty unruffled. That was Anna Simic. I confess to Anna that I have a Nick and Tex Perkins story too. I went to the lounge, you know, the when lounge, I was at uni. Yes. And I would have been probably just 18. And, you know, I was at RMIT, so he just walked down. And he was there with Tex. Was he in a suit? Yeah, I think so, in a corner. Nice. And, of course, I was just like... Oh, my God. There they are. Two of them. <laughs> Together. They're not and I spent the whole night <laughs> trying to get the guts <laughs> to go and say hello. Oh, and I was trying to work out exactly the same thing as you, though, in a way. Like, how do I do that without looking like a stupid fangirl. And I couldn't come up with anything. It's like, I'm 18. There's just no way I'm going to... So I just stared at them all night. But now I regret it because there's nothing I could have done to not have been seen that way. But as you say, I mean, they were used to it and if I'd tried to have an intelligent conversation, it would have been okay. Mm. Musician Michael Simic, who has toured around the country singing the songs of Nick Cave was backstage too at that Canberra gig. And then I went over to the pool table and Tex was there and he was just uh, playing pool with someone and he was just like going, it's all about the cock, isn't it? That's pretty much uh, what this whole business is about, the cock. Is that what he said and to you? sort of fairly like he had a bad taste. Yeah, that's all I remember of it. And it wasn't like in a positive way. And then I looked around and went, you know, it was weird because like people were just, women were just like fucking... It's like Nick Cave had a bit of a barrier of a few feet where people couldn't. It was a force field, but like everyone was just gravitating towards him. And Tex may as well not have existed. No one really gave a shit. Had Nick not been there, everyone would have been gravitating towards Tex, but like Nick had more star power in that room. I'm not sure Tex is exactly right. It might be all about the cock for the musicians themselves, but when we engage with someone we fantasise about or who fantasises about us, what do we really want? Do we want to possess to see the light reflected back at us? And why does live performance take it to a whole new level? 
Patty Smith defines it for me. I remember standing at her gig and thinking, I'm in a cult. At this point, she could tell me to do anything and I would do it. My desire was transcendent, an immersion in words and song that took me somewhere beyond the space I was standing in. And it was about control. She could skate so close to the edge, occasionally losing it, and all the more exciting for that risk, moving me in a slow build, translated from her body to mine through repetition and rhythm, the sly force of her chant and beat. Here's McCarvey from the birthday party on what it was like to be on stage, perched close to the abyss. The more out of control people were, or the more out of it certain members of the band were, the more it would start getting dangerous and unpredictable. And if the chemical mixture was really kind of in a good balance where they could still function, then that's really when things would start getting interesting. But it was very uncontrolled because like being in the chemistry lab and making a dangerous cocktail in a test tube, it might just blow up, you know. I never knew what was going to happen from night to night. Did you enjoy that? Well, I get a lot of this like, oh, that must have been so hard being there and putting up with everybody fucking up all the time. But it wasn't really like that. And I was very aware that the most exciting parts of the shows would be when things got really at the edge. Because I was there watching it all and I was like, really, sometimes like, wow, what the fuck is going on here? But I knew it came with the territory too. I kind of understood that. I never used to be able to speak to anyone for about half an hour before a show after, you know, from about start of 1981 because it just felt so dangerous. You were going to go out, out there and I had no idea what condition Tracy or Nick might be in and how that was going to work or what they were going to do or if the audience would maybe be idiots and it could get dangerous from them or... And, and if the whole thing that I'd been working towards for the last week was just going to fall flat on its face and be a complete farce, or if it was going to be transcendent, Nick hit people in the head with his microphone stand more than once. And I'm talking about members of the band, accidentally. And how important was that energy from the audience? Most of the vibrational energy was coming from the band, in my experience. So the audience was getting it, but it was, it was the band that was creating it. So the so it, wasn't, was, it wasn't us responding to the audience, the audience and for Nick like to the fall show. off the stage and for Tracy to hit someone with his bass or I don't know what they were expecting, but they'd be ready to just go ah, and throw themselves around. And that, when that started happening, we just started playing as many slow songs as we possibly could, you know, because it really wasn't what it was about for us. It wasn't about getting the audience to go crazy. It was really, in a bizarre way, a kind of artwork, stepping outside of all of that traditional stuff of the audience and the band. We set out to destroy rock music by playing rock music. But we never discussed any of this stuff, so it was all unspoken. You know, you're on stage and it's about the dynamic space between you guys gauging each other, you know, and creating something. Yeah, if there was a sense of expectation in the audience, that something exciting was about to happen because they'd heard what the band was like, then that would set up a, a good platform for us to... But it was really about us have, impacting the audience. And you could defeat their expectations. Then. Totally, yeah. if we wanted to, yeah. And once any moment it would start becoming predictable, it was just like the whole thing was destroyed. 
The Songzu Music Girl. Its drumming beat, its sensual lyrics, its exciting build of tension, stands out from the other birthday party songs. Here's Amanda. I became obsessed with the sound of the birthday party and I remember particularly liking Sue Music Girl. It doesn't sound like anything else I've heard. This sexy beat with brass fanfares and clearly an enormous amount of devotion expressed in the lyrics. If there is one thing I desire in this world is to make love to my Sue Music Girl. I thought it was probably about one really impressive woman. And I came up with this crazy beat, which is the main beat of Zoo Music Girl. Can I still do the beat? Yeah. Can you just do it with you now? Actually, just getting, gotta get me in the mood. Oh. <laughs> Why? Something like that on the table. Now you can feed your tracking right there off the end of me doing that. Nick said, hey, keep that going, keep that going. And then we worked out the breakdown bit in the mirror. He said, no, I need another bit. I need a bit where it just goes like this. Then we did this thing with just these white accents. With the hi-hat bit, which is where he does, uh, you know, my body is, you know. Um, That song stemmed from the drum part, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as good if it wasn't for the awesome bass line that Tracy stuck on it as well. I've got Nick's typed lyrics for Zoom Music Girl. I think I've shown you those, haven't I, in the past? Yeah, yeah. Because you can see where he's, you know, it's got bits of either lipstick or blood on it. And you can see where he's changed. You know, oh, he's typed these words, but then when he's actually singing in the studio, that word's not working or that sentence is too long. So he's cut, you know, he's crossed things out for when he's reminding himself to sing it. That was the birthday party drummer, Phil Calvert. Here's McCarvey. Zoom Music Girl's a bit more lyrically maybe interesting, but I think musically is a bit more tied up with a few contemporaneous things that were happening. So less interesting in terms of us forging our own identity and our own kind of sound. So you've got that sort of song which is probably in some way oddly connected with even, you know, Adam and the Ants and Bow Wow Wow. It was still, I was like 21 or something. Anything that we'd hear and things that, other things that we liked and uh, seeing if or how we could incorporate those things into stuff that we were trying to do or use those elements. So we were always very open to just things being used. Well, I'm just happy you said Adam and the Ants. <laughs> well, they were great. The Kings of the Wild Frontier album. I mean, the stuff before that's a bit, it's, you know, it's a bit there. And the stuff after that, when they get into the Dandy Highwaymen and everything, is all just a bit like on the nose and a bit silly. But that Kings of the Wild Frontier album, no, that is, that is, that is. Come on, the Kings of the Wild Frontier album is really brilliant. Even lyrically, a lot of it's really good. It's quite a powerful work, actually. But it's all just using the Burundi drummers stuff and like Bow Wow Wow did too. They just stole all this stuff from the Burundi drummers and that was a hit at the time as well. So it was really around all that um, heavy, lots of tom-tom sort of stuff. We asked Michael Simic to perform Zoom Music Girl for this episode because on stage, whether it's with Amanda Palmer or the Black Sea Gentleman, he veers close to that dangerous edge here he talks about feeling himself into that psychosexual trance suggested by the song. I never think that we're drawn to music because we just think we like the sound of it. 
I think we're drawn to the music because it's somehow within this deep part of us of things we've experienced as a child, of our, our joys and our trauma and the, the whole strange muddle of almost pre-cognitive memory experience. That song is in a state of sexual psychosis, which for better or worse is a real state that most people end up in sooner or later. <laughs> I don't want to speak for everybody, and I certainly am not like that all the time. But there is something to do with the state of uh, intense sexual attraction that has it's got a slightly psychotic edge to it, whether, whether it's just happening within your own mind or whether it's something that's playing out. It's affecting my own mind and body, but it might not be affecting anybody else. It's a very interesting thing, those, the, the way desire works within the exchange that's going on between the mind and body. But I think why Zoo Music Girl is interesting is it goes into that terrain. It's terrain that most men would either say that they don't know or pretend that they don't know. But in my mind, and it's perhaps why the birthday party are interesting, why Nick Cave is a, a lyricist is interesting to me, is because they're prepared to go to places as a band that aren't necessarily going to portray them as good people. But Zoo Music Girl, I had to go there so fully and having that repetitive primal backing really allowed me to find some kind of, I wouldn't say I was feeling sexual exactly at the time, but I was certainly feeling heightened. I could feel my blood coursing fast through my veins. My mind really moved back and, and I felt like I was acting more from my, my reptilian brain. <laughs> yeah, and it was fun. What can I say? I think we all need to do that from time to time. Maybe it's a bit like primal screaming. <laughs> I don't know. So I'd instinctively approach that song a bit like it was a one animal sniffing another animal and then then turned out we liked rolling around together. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't like all sex to be like Zoom Music Girl or all sexual feelings, but I think that song inhabits part of a, almost like a crush when it's hard to stop thinking about someone and their very image is impressed in your mind and uh, it's usually nothing that person's done they've somehow triggered something in you <laughs> that song plays in that whole phantasm of eroticism unconscious desires made conscious i can see that person very vividly but they are like a dream image so even though they're, they're, that woman is very vivid i also couldn't draw her i couldn't tell you what she looks like because it's some image coming out of a world that's through a veil. As I was making this podcast and interviewing Mick and Genevieve, I was really keen to talk to Anita Lane. The lyrics she has contributed to songs like Stranger Than Kindness and From Her To Eternity, the brutality and originality of her words make those my favourite Nick Cave songs. And I tried every avenue I could, but I felt torn. I wanted to hear her speak for herself, but it also was clear that she was not interested in being interviewed. In the middle of my interviews, I hear the gutting news that Anita has died. I talked to Bronwyn, her friend, just days after the funeral, where she is in a space of deep grief but she is keen to remember Anita. I dreamt of a day when I would have friends 
I didn't know there were other people like me because I was in Box Hill. To meet people who voluntarily read books, who loved art, to meet people who all the things about me that had made me a pariah were suddenly my crown. I remember the first time I met Anita was at Bruce Milne's because uh, Roland was there to do the logo for Pulp, the fanzine that Bruce was doing. And, um, and he just kind of did it and it was this super great kind of blotty, very arresting image. He did it with ink. And Roland was with Anita because he was going to Pran then and he met Anita and Lisa. And I'd heard about Anita from Peter. So they were together as a couple or just uh, mates? No, they were just friends, although he was very crushy. He was very crushy on every great girl in the scene. Anita was there and she said, Oh, you'd be really beautiful in the 1950s. <laughs> And I thought, well, yeah, that's true, because I had bosoms and a waist and all that, and everybody else was more boyish, boyish figured, I'd say. And she thought I looked like Marlene Dietrich, because <laughs> I had high cheekbones, I think, and slightly slanty eyes, slightly almondy eyes. Um, whenever she'd draw me, she'd Marlene Dietrichy eyes me, <laughs> which was quite nice. As everybody says, she was very radiantly beautiful and had a real vibe about her, was just very charismatic. And she did kind of talk like a little girl. Um, <laughs> she once said to me, Yes, but you don't have any malice. Whereas malice is a big slice of my personal person pie. She was probably, out of everyone who was very gifted, I'm just thinking here, of the ones who actually lived, she had the hardest time functioning and coping in the world. Yeah, she, she had the hardest time. It just really had no understanding of cause and effect, kind of, and how to wrangle the world. Was she like that from the beginning? Yeah, she's very, very chaotic. Whereas I've improved, as you can see. And when I'm not mourning and my house is actually all nice for visitors, like normally I would have cleaned up, it's not grey gardens at all. <laughs> <laughs> and all it needs is a lick of paint. I'll never forget that. <laughs> all it needs is that a is so doo 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 because I was just talking to my mum yesterday about grey gardens really? and I haven't talked about that for years like I just mentioned it to her I said have you seen that movie synchronicity yeah um weird yeah weird synchronicity <laughs> I'm Mrs. Synchronicity, you know, yeah. and Anita was Mrs. Synchronicity. In Ian Johnson's biography of Nick Cave, Bad Seed, Anita says of her songs, I didn't want to be on a pedestal on the record. I wanted to talk to other girls. I kind of wanted to glorify insecurity rather than being confident and successful. I wanted some kind of equality between the emotions that are raised up for people to look at to show other emotions that are equally as valid as confidence and control. Anita Starpower comes from the courage to be vulnerable, to embrace that uncertainty, to make mistakes. Her songs, her sexuality, her art seem eclipsed by sadness, wrapped in a muddle-headed childlike space. While she was baby doll in voice and dress early on, it was her capacity for play that brought delight 
in her lyrics and videos. Her life was a work of art, yeah. but it wasn't able to be put in a gallery. Mm. It was like she was drawing a masterpiece in the sand, drawing a masterpiece in the air, writing a book with her words, um, designing a fashion line with her style. <laughs> she was just a work of art, she really was. But it wasn't in the world because we value product, not artistic vision. It was very painful for her to take the risk of putting her stuff out there. So how did she feel about contributing so much to this person, she, to Nick, and, and so much yeah. to the whole, whole well, scene, you know? She did feel, she felt too conflicting things so she felt like I wish I got recognition for my ideas and that they weren't kind of just that they didn't get used by other people but on the other hand she would give them to people sort of freely and she also felt I don't want to be in the spotlight and this is also probably being female because people would gossip about it. Because she was a very radiant, beautiful, amazing kind of queen of the scene person, a lot of people wanted to pull her down. She just really didn't want to be in the public eye in that sense of being picture part. She gave people her ideas because they were just constantly falling off her. As Nick said, Nick once said, well, you should try to grab your ideas from one because when they just fall off you like a nature, it's a pity. He said, you should grab those. That was in Berlin. Bledon Butcher talks about photographing Nick Cave in Berlin and how Nick wants to be shot as if lit within. I don't think this happens with Nick, but with Anita Lane, there is no question. She glows out of photos, off the screen, especially in the work of Peter Milne, where her hair is tied up to the hill's hoist, or she's an angel in soft focus, drifting in white lace. Listening to Anita's music with Mick Harvey, it seems years ahead of its time. The strange disco, the words that stun, shock, discombobulate. The videos are quirky, with Mick a sidecar sidekick to her motorcycle, or a chaperone in a cocktail bar watching a contortionist. It's just such a sudden avalanche after an echoing silence of decades. And as one person posted, I couldn't sell any Anita Lane records while she was alive. And now suddenly everyone, you know, adores her. And that's pretty much the deal. Um, and she wasn't active in the arts scene. She was very reclusive over the past 10, 20 years. The fact that she had such a celebrated partner, a lot of her work went in just because of proximity. A lot of her work went into his work. And what I was saying really in that post, and I was trying to unpack that lack of recognition, my central point is just that because our world and our society for a truly original person who is fragile and who isn't a great marketer and who doesn't fit in and who from the word go is told there's something wrong with them, it's very hard for them to contribute meaningfully and some people have the steel to do it. But Anita didn't have that steely. But she also didn't want to be spotlit. She didn't want to be on stage and she didn't want to be a product. 
So it would have needed there to be some kind of platform or venue for a person like that. And how can a person like that contribute their vision? Because there just isn't a place for it. When I said in heaven, so yeah, I just imagine a temple or a place that is <laughs> designed to facilitate a truly original person's vision. But that's a big ask. How would you do that? Here's Amanda, whose work and creative spirit has been profoundly influenced by the art of Anita Lane. She could sing about sugaring hurricanes or wanting to make love to the next man that she saw and then transform songs like sexual healing and uh, lost in music in something entirely new and completely hers. I think that's wonderful about Anita. She always remains so true to herself. She always embraced her mystery and fragility. And she was revolutionary without even trying. She just owned it without being explicit or giving away her most intimate self. But giving enough axles for us to see something of ourselves reflected in her riddles. Especially young women. Uh, finding in her words inspiration and comfort, but also seeing her figure as a personification of all those things we feel that quite often cannot be validated or explained. I feel extremely honored to belong to the group of people who unexpectedly came across her work and who have been truly moved by it. It feels like a secret beautiful treasure that belongs only to those who truly need it. Her music makes me feel alive and to explore all the possibilities and to live love as it comes. Female empowerment has become such a strong movement in the arts in the recent years, but I don't think anyone else has done what she did and for that feel. And Anita actually just played with all the possibilities she could think about. It's difficult to be surprised by anything to say, but the contribution Anita made continues to surprise. When I listen to Anita's songs, she has an uncanny access to the tendrils of my grief, to the otherworldly nature of my emotions. For Nick, his words and even his performances on stage sometimes seem a pose in contrast to hers. But that's before I head to Ballarat. I sit by the lake with the man I've spent 25 years with, a shared soundtrack of the bad seeds on all the many drives we've done around the country. We sit in that hollow, unbearable, pain-streaked state of still together, but knowing it's the end. The bats fly across the sky, a foreshadowing. We are not ready to release, not yet. But as Nick starts to sing and Warren starts to play, we sit in the stadium miles away from the stage and I try to pull the sky to us for comfort. And I cry the whole way through the show as Nick stands, his face lined, his hair no longer spiked, his frame spindly and fragile. My desire expired and I watch as he seems to tear his heart out of his body to hold it beating and bleeding in front of us.
In the beginning there is darkness. The camera is shaking in his hands until he puts it on the tripod. It is much heavier than he remembered. The most important thing is to keep it all steady. Benny dangles on a platform just metres from the roof. He likes looking down on the ballroom, as if he's swinging on the chandelier. People forget he's up here. The birthday parties start off aimless. They're wasted men. Nick wanders about on stage like a deranged kid at a debutante ball. Tracy drifts. Tracy's hat shelters his face, leather pants reflecting the lights as he sweats. But as Nick starts to bump into him, Tracy wields his bass like a machine gun starting to fire. The repetitive bass line drowns the band, ritualistic, the one chord that builds a mood of menace, working as a mantra for the crowd, exercising something from their souls. It's Roland who appears to do the work, all interior, wearing horizontal stripes, cigarette dangling at the corner of his mouth. The way he plays is frantic. Then he finds the intensity frightening. But as Roland leans inwards, his guitar takes on the jarring whine of feedback, a broken bottle to the ears. Benny gets caught up in Roland's loop of sound and wants to know how he does it. The guitar at a certain angle as he sculpts noise, a violation that enters the body that's not meant to happen, channeling an animal that comes in and out of his control. Nick stumbles around with his large, lolling head. The mic is jammed up to his mouth. A toddler clutching a bottle of milk in his fists, fearful of another kid grabbing him. guy to the side of stage, playing roadie, waiting for the fall. Nick disappears for a while. He comes back with a canvas, carrying it like a warrior shield. He tries to scale the PA stack but keeps falling down. He stutters, on, on, on his knees. Benny watches him, trying to anticipate his movements and keep him in frame. Nick moves so quickly, but Benny's watched him enough. It's Jenny's, an original oil painting neat across the canvas. Nick plays it like a wobble board before flinging it into the audience. And as it sails through the air, Benny captures its arc before it lands and is belted about by the crowd. The girls at the front watch the band like they're in line for a beheading, waiting for Nick to be monstrous to hurt them. The lights roam their faces macabre in the twilight. Roll up for the freak show. You can see the platinum glint of Connie's hair. She's focused on Tracy and she'll be flexing her fingers playing along. The girls stand together in the centre, hoping to be chosen, glittering in the mirrors where Nick can see them reflected along with his own face. Nick pretends not to see them. 
He's locked in battle with his songs, the band, and the audience too. Only occasionally does he surrender and let his body give in. Nick flings his hands out behind him and chops off Roland's cigarette, knocking it from his mouth. The ember burns into Nick's hand and he keeps going before he screams. Nick and Roland look like colour has never entered their world, flickering through black and white film. Benny's eyes move from one to the other, trying to decide who would rather be. The audience doesn't sing, but they know every pulse of it. They feel its physical effect, the landscape it travels through. But what they are really waiting for is to see Nick go manic. Benny waits for it too. That transition to some unknown space where things move from edgy to dangerous. Through it all, McCarvey plays in the shadows. Nick leans out into the audience with his long arms and grabs the graceful pale hand of a girl. He pulls her up on stage. She's in a short velvet dress and is not sure what to do now she's up there. She starts to sway, turn to Nick. Eyes only for Nick. He drapes himself around her, a praying mantis about to devour its prey, an ugly insect. Nick grabs the lead and swings the mic like a lasso over Tracy's head. It clunks to the ground, sending a shock through the amps, and Guy runs to get it, bent like a servant. Guy puts it back up on the mic stand. Nick grabs it and teases, drops it again, thump. Guy just leaves it. Tracy's drunk and he's starting to sway. Guy props him up with one hand, waiting for him to go face down. Benny zooms in on Connie and hopes it happens. She'll want to jump in and take over. The girl puts her arms around Nick and dances in front of him, whipping his body with her dark hair as he winds the lead around her neck. She dances near him, sullen, as he takes her by the arm and tries to drag her back into the wilderness. But she doesn't want to go back. Nick turns away from her, no longer interested, a discarded toy dropped from his tarantula hands. Nick lies on the front of the stage, face level with the crowd. He plays to the people, the waves of his lyrics rolling out. His body shakes like he's having electric shock therapy. The sound is beautiful, it's perfect. I call her name out in the night. To music girl, to music girl. I call her by her family name. To music girl, to music girl. Oh God, let me die beneath her fists. To music girl. He dangles the mic and rolls off stage, falling into the dark river of hands, disappearing below the crowd. He surfaces and tries to swim from the stage, and as he strokes, the girl on stage starts to move away too, the mic lead a lazy loop. Benny waves from the platform, trying to get Guy's attention. 
As Nick is served by the crowd, the lead gets tighter. Benny makes a cutting gesture to Nick Harvey to stop the show, but he doesn't look up. The girl's body starts to float away. Nick Harvey and Roland on either side of the stage stand there looking at each other while staccato drums continue the attack. And as the girl goes under, the crowd can now see. They rise up and start pushing Nick back to shore as he finishes the song, the girl floating with him. As she reaches the stage, Guy runs on and tries to loosen the lifeline, pulling the lead. An angry groove cuts into her neck. Nick bends to pick her up and lifts the noose above the girl's head. He turns to the audience, palms outstretched. He holds the girl out to them, dangling in his arms. A lifeless girl, pale skin, long dark hair, a sacred offering. That's the Zoo Music Girl chapter from my novel Almost a Mirror, which is published by Transit Lounge. The book is structured as a mixtape of 80s music, with each chapter revolving around a song. Almost a Mirror is available at all bookstores and as an ebook too. The audiobook is coming soon. Our version of Zoo Music Girl features vocals and electric guitar by Michael Simic, floor tom by Paul Huntingford, and drum overdubs, bass, church bells, guitar feedback, clicks, chains and Baking Tray by Richard Andrew. It's all about the baking tray. It was recorded by Paul Huntingford and Richard and produced by Richard Andrew at Pharmacy Studios. For the original version, check out the birthday party on Bandcamp. Coming up in the next episode, we head to Brisbane to the police state of Joe Bielke peterson and a song that reverberated around the world, I'm Stranded by The Saints. The Almost a Mirror podcast is written and produced by me, Kirsten Crowth, with sound design and mixing by Jed Palmer and Louis Shellier-Gray. Thanks to Jason Walker for tech support too. This podcast is supported by the Donald Horn Creative and Cultural Fellowship from the University of Canberra. Thanks to the Australian Music Vault at Arts Centre Melbourne and punkjourney.com for helping so much with research. The theme song is written by Michael Simic and produced by Michael Mooney with vocals by La Trouble, a.k.a. Michael Mooney, and Kay Proudlove. If you'd like to listen to any of the songs featured in this podcast, head to Almost a Mirror on Bandcamp to download them and support local musicians who are really doing it tough right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I look forward to your company next time. Bye. Bye.